Welcome to this AMR audio interview, sponsored by the Transactions of the ASME, Applied Mechanics Reviews, and the Applied Mechanics Division within ASME. I'm your host, Harry Dankovich, and also the editor of Applied Mechanics Reviews. Applied Mechanics Reviews is an international review journal that serves as a premier venue for dissemination of material across all sub-disciplines of applied mechanics and engineering science, including fluid and solid mechanics, heat transfer, dynamics and vibration, and applications. This series of AMR audio interviews features personal reflections of my guests on matters pertaining to all aspects of applied mechanics research, including past, current, and predicted research trends, a professional career in science and academia, scientific dissemination and peer review, public engagement and impact, and curricular innovation and developments. We hope that you find the AMR interviews a valuable complement to the perhaps less personal and more technically focused material available through the AMR journal, as well as other technical journals in the area of applied mechanics. I'm excited to present to you today's guest, Professor David M. Barnett, with joint appointments in the Departments of Material Science and Mechanical Engineering at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. Professor Barnett was born in 1939 in Washington, D.C. He earned his B.A. and Master of Science degree in Mechanical Engineering from Rice University in 1961 and 1963, respectively. His first paper, jointly authored with Dr. John Roberts, on a discussion of the importance of line tension on Cottrell's theory of the sharp yield point, appeared in the Transactions of the Metallurgical Society of AIME in 1963. He then pursued a Ph.D. in Material Science at Stanford University. Following his graduation in 1967, Dr. Barnett spent one year as a NATO postdoctoral fellow at the Institut für Theoretische Physik at the Technical University, then known as an Hochschule, Klausthal, in Klausthal-Zellefeld, in what was then the German Federal Republic, under the advisorship of Professor Eckhard Kroner. Upon his return to the U.S., he worked as a member of the scientific research staff at Ford Motor Company in Dearborn, Michigan, and then joined the Stanford faculty, where he was promoted to professor in 1978. During the period of 1988 through 1992, Professor Barnett also held the position of Chairman of the Division of Mechanics and Computation at Stanford. Professor Barnett has published 116 archival publications on topics within the theory of solids, including dislocations, fracture, anisotropic elastic theory of crystal defects, surface interfacial and bulk waves in anisotropic elastic solids, non-destructive evaluation of residual stresses using ultrasonics, thermodynamics of stressed solids, modeling of diffusion in fuel cell membranes, and recently, modeling of capacitance of atomic force microscope tips. A joint paper with Zhigang Suo, Dr. Kuo, and John Willis appeared in 1992 in the Journal of the Mechanics and Physics of Solids and was titled Fracture Mechanics for Piezoelectric Ceramics. This paper has been cited more than 740 times since its publication. Work with Jens Lote from 1976 on surface waves in piezoelectric crystals and anisotropic elastic materials has also received much attention. Professor Barnett is the recipient of the 2012 A.C. Erringen Medal from the Society of Engineering Science in recognition of sustained outstanding achievements in engineering science. On this occasion, Zhigang Suo uh, noted on iMechanica, Congratulations to Dave Barnett on this award for a wonderful career, pioneering at the boundary between material science and mechanics. Your scholarship and creativity have set an example. Your work on anisotropic elasticity and piezoelectricity has been an inspiration for many of us. The interview you're about to hear was recorded in Atlanta, Georgia, on October 10, 2012. Professor Barnett, welcome to this AMR audio interview. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. 
So I'm, I'm, uh, I read about your, your uh, um, early years. I skipped a big chunk between birth and going to college. So what can you tell me a little bit about your, your time in Washington and uh, you know, early forming, formative years? Well, I, I was born in uh, uh, Washington, D.C. My parents had both uh, gone there during the Depression because that's where jobs were more available than in Texas. My mother was actually born in Russia and immigrated to the States in the early 20s. My dad is a Chicago native. Oh, really? And uh, uh, we moved to Texas probably when I was about a year and a half old because my mother had actually grown up there after coming to the States. Where in Texas? Uh, in Austin, uh-huh. uh, which I still think is one of the nicest cities uh-huh. uh, in the United States, yeah. uh, one of the more pleasant places yeah. in which to raise a family yeah. still. Yeah. And I still enjoy visiting back there, but I, uh, I don't know what I can tell you that uh, that I can still remember between the time I uh, started growing up as a youngster and went to college. Uh, uh, I have a great story about my first day in school. In those sure. days, nobody had cars because it was right after the war. You didn't get gasoline, mm-hmm. and you couldn't. If you, most people didn't have cars anyway. So I used to uh, take the bus to school. My mom went on to work and with me on the bus, and mm-hmm. I got off at school, and I was supposed to take the bus home that afternoon. Uh, I was probably the only uh, kid in the first grade who didn't know how to print his name. I could mm-hmm. read, mm-hmm. but I, mm-hmm. writing was not a skill that I had at that uh-huh. time. And so when we went out to play at recess, I climbed a big oak tree, stayed too long, and when I got back down, there were no kids on the playground, so I assumed it was time to go home. So I left school probably two hours earlier okay. than I had to and had to go in and apologize to the teacher the uh, next day. Uh-huh. So I've made up my mind not to be late again. Yeah. But I went through the uh, uh, the public school system there, which I think was actually yeah. quite, uh, quite good and yeah. was fortunate enough to uh, uh, be accepted at Rice uh, for college in the days in which they charged no tuition. Oh, so yeah. my yeah. college years were... Quite cheap, yes. relative certainly to what I spent on my daughters at Stanford. <laughs> did you did you exhibit aptitude for mathematics and interest in, in science? Well, I already think I was. On? I think I was always interested in in uh, math, though. Uh, I had a terrible time with long division, hmm. in uh, because I didn't pay attention when the teacher talked okay. about it. Yeah. Uh, but otherwise, it was. I had the benefit of having had, uh, I think, very good math teachers all along. And, uh, of course, they taught math a little bit differently. A lot of it was done by just rote, and you would learn how to do things yeah. oh, by practicing over yeah. and over again. Yeah. But the teachers were good, and, and I thought there was something there that I really liked. Science education was uh, not as good, uh-huh. uh, and uh, this was all pre-Sputnik. And mm-hmm. once, uh, uh, once, uh, once Sputnik was sent up, of course, then uh, at least uh, most youngsters my age, I think, who, who felt like they wanted to go on to college, uh, really believed that we had a chance to do something that was a, would lead us to a good career and also was good for the country as a whole. So... Uh, it was. I don't think I ever thought about going into science. Uh, yeah. It was just one of those things that seemed quite natural. Yeah. But I always enjoyed liberal arts, also, yeah. uh, and uh, so it was. Uh, for me, it was going to a small school. Certainly, going to one that was tuition free. It was yeah. just a wonderful. Chance. What was the reason that they did? That they charged no tuition. Well, William Rice uh, had made his money in oil uh-huh. in Texas. His butler actually poisoned him with arsenic, huh. and uh, at, they tried tried to rewrite the will 
will so that he would uh, get most of the yeah. money. Yeah. And uh, eventually this was found out. Yeah. And uh, so the money that from Rice's estate was specifically used as he wanted it used, which was to establish a university. Uh, and that was to be free. Yeah. Uh, it was originally set up only for, I think, white Texans. I see. And uh, but that, of course, has changed yeah. over the years. Yeah. And I think even when I went started there in 57, it was not integrated, but the will was broken in 1964. And uh, so now it's quite a diverse uh, university, mm-hmm. still small. Sure. I think yeah. we had when I entered in 57, the uh, the four year class was total was 1700 students. I, I'm not sure what it is now, but I'm guessing around 4,000. And, and what so was it's the still small different uh, degree programs? Available? Well, they had they had engineering, they had physics, they had mathematics, the uh, they had all, you know, liberal arts, languages, history, uh, English, uh, uh, but uh, quite honestly, the liberal arts program at that time was not anywhere near uh, as good as the engineering program and the students were sort of divided into two groups which they called engineers and Academics. Uh-huh. The academics were the non-engineers or the non-science yeah. people. Yeah. Uh, but nowadays, I think uh, uh, that kind of distinction is uh, has changed. Uh, people probably still are the the uh, the rigor of the undergraduate program. There is uh, probably still such that engineers and scientists don't have a lot of time mm-hmm. to take uh, uh, you know a lot of liberal arts courses. But it. it's uh, it's probably they probably take more than we did. They just have a lot to take in general. And there presumably are these gen ed requirements now. Oh uh, yeah, they, they did when I had it. But to well, do, I think our freshman year we. Would uh, every uh, uh, every freshman at that time took Math 100, which was calculus. And it didn't matter whether you were a history major or anything oh, else. And engineers, if you were a science engineer, you took Math, Physics, and Chemistry. And uh, then you took uh, either uh, Ancient History or American History, mm-hmm. uh, English, mm-hmm. and uh, or Philosophy. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, most people would have taken a language course. And you had a physical education. This is all during the freshman year? All during the freshman oh, year. So it wasn't and, spread out over the... No, no no, then you the sophomore year. I think you, you all engineers probably took four years of math, uh, three from the math department, one in their own discipline, uh, uh, at least two years of physics, uh, at least uh, one or two years of chemistry, mm-hmm. and uh, you know we had some other liberal arts courses thrown in. I had a couple of years of German, one of Russian which almost kept me from graduating. I, mm-hmm. I took the course mainly to meet girls because we didn't have many in our engineering classes. And uh, unfortunately, I was a senior then, and I didn't study a lot for mm-hmm. language. But the prof took, uh, you know, uh, he, he took good care of me. Okay. And somehow let me pass. Yeah. So um, you had an opportunity to spend a year in Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we spoke uh, earlier, you, you reflected on some of those experiences you had there mm-hmm. or, or in, and how it, it uh, affected your sort of personal growth. Would you want to talk a little bit about that? Oh, sure. I, uh, I had a wonderful time there. It was, uh, it was sort of interesting. I'm, I'm Jewish. And so uh, my, uh, my mom, was. she said, are you sure you want to go to Germany? This was uh, 67, so it would have been yes. about 22 years after the war. And I said, yeah, because I, I had met Kerner, a marvelous man. He, yeah. he himself had uh, uh, been uh, conscripted into the German army, I think, at, at the age of 19, and ended up fighting in Stalingrad, where I he see. was taken prisoner. And he spent a number of years in Siberia in mm-hmm. a prisoner of war camp mm-hmm. of the Soviets and really underwent terrible privations. He picked up tuberculosis, mm-hmm. and that was the reason they finally released him, but three years after the end of the war. 
really? I think two or three years after the end of the war. Yeah. And his, the woman who became his wife uh, nursed him back to health. And he, within, I think, six years of returning to Germany, he had already basically um, completed his Habilitation, uh -huh. which was his classic book on uh, continuum theory of dislocations and internal stresses. They released would, him to West Germany. Or, uh, yeah, or? Yes, they sent him. They sent him back to back to West Germany, yeah. and uh, uh, he uh, used to have us in his entire uh, students that he was supervising for degrees. We would meet in his office once a week for yeah. wonderful German pastries and good coffee, uh -huh. and uh, he would uh, invariably uh, uh, the talk would get around to something about his days in Siberia. Yeah. And he, uh, I never will forget, he uh, he borrowed some uh, cigarette paper and some tobacco from one of the students who rolled his own cigarettes in yes. those days. And so he said, uh, this is what I learned to do in the camp. And he put his hand in his pocket with the paper and with the cigarette, oh, tobacco. tobacco yeah. And he actually, you know, took him about a minute and, to and roll he brought out a rolled pocket. cigarette. He <laughs> said, you know, we would pick up tobacco off the ground and do oh, this. Wow. I, uh, why I, I still remember that it's story, stuck, I don't know. Yeah. But it's one of these things yeah. that just stuck with me. Yeah. But he was, a, he was a marvelous man, really um, uh, one of the uh, – uh, he, he was absolutely – smooth and charming individual he yeah. uh, uh to, to, to watch him at dinner talking with a table of uh, men and women it yeah. was just something to see and it, it's uh, uh i sort of feel that way about a lot of the uh, older people who sort of dominated the fields that i got in uh, uh when i started out i mean for me to sit at dinner with these people. Mm -hmm. Listen, I, I think I had the good sense to keep my mouth shut most mm -hmm. of the time, uh, but I certainly learned a lot about uh, people, uh, how to tell a story, how to keep a conversation going, when not to say a word. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And uh, these were these were definitely uh, a different breed. Of this was a small community, Klaus Tal. Yeah, but he, we always had visitors. Yeah. I mean, we, for example, I think uh, Egon Orowan from MIT came through to receive a medal from the, uh, the University of Braunschweig or Braunschweig uh, uh, Scientific yeah. Society. Yeah. And, I, and Kariner asked me to come over and have uh, uh, coffee and cake mm -hmm. uh, after mm -hmm. dinner one night with Orowan. And I, I would just sat in amazement to listen to these two mm -hmm. men. I mean, you knew you were in the presence of great Mm -hmm. And uh, it was, I was just sitting there hoping, oh, please let some of this rub off on me. It, it didn't, but that's all right. I mean, I, uh, I had a good time. Uh -huh. and I still when, enjoy that. Yeah. And, and then uh, uh, in terms of uh, technical work while you were there? Well, yeah, I, I, I can't pretend to have done a lot of technical work. They had a, actually a fantastic library, which was right across hmm. the hall from my office. And so I would go over there, and the first thing I got was a copy of this uh Progress in Solid Mechanics from 1961, edited by Snedden and Hill. Mm -hmm. And in there was Eshelby's paper on the transformed ellipsoidal inclusion. Mm -hmm. And I read that. And uh, then it turned out Kerner got a, uh, a letter from one of his colleagues, I forget where in Germany. Anyway, he needed a calculation done. And Kerner was, of course, a good elastician, but in those days he was also the dean of the university. And so he, he sort of funneled it down to me and said, well, why don't you answer mm -hmm. this fellow? So mm -hmm. it gave me a good uh, uh, opportunity to practice uh, what I thought I had learned from mm -hmm. Eshelby's paper. Yeah. I still regard that as... Uh, Absolutely one of the most useful papers I've ever read uh -huh. from the standpoint of being able to uh, consult with students or other faculty on problems of practical uh, interest, whether it's in residual stresses or dislocations or uh, phase changes and associated uh, under stress. And uh, 
it was a, a, a beautiful piece of work. And uh, so I spent a lot of my time doing reading, and it got me away from my thesis topic, which was a good thing because I, you know, you don't want to read. This is what you had done back at back at, at, at Stanford, actually, for oh, sorry. PhD, yeah, yeah, and, sorry. and yeah. so it's it's. Uh, you know, it was a good thing mm -hmm. for me, and it got me on to, uh, to learning something new. And, I, and what it showed me was, of course, uh, in a little different way than the Ph.D. thesis did, I could actually learn a new subject mm -hmm. on my own. Mm -hmm. And it's one that I had absolutely, you know, very little experience in before mm -hmm. I uh, had read the article. And uh, I think uh, basically our, our what we really try to do, at least what I try to do in graduate school, is give the give students the opportunity to gain some confidence, mm -hmm. to learn that they can, in fact, take a problem that they knew nothing about, mm -hmm. or, and and develop a, a skill set and attack a problem mm -hmm. and do something with it. They yeah. don't have to completely solve it. Most theses, you know, don't are not world beaters, mm -hmm. but uh, that's not what they're designed to do. Mm -hmm. They're designed to to train, and, mm -hmm. and you train, I think, by helping to give people self confidence. And um, uh, so uh, I think I learned a good, valuable lesson about how to be a better academic, even though I wasn't really an academic mm -hmm. at that mm -hmm. time. How would you compare your experience as a master's student at Rice, graduate student, doctoral student at Stanford, oh. and then postdoc in Germany in terms of the uh, collegiality and, and the, being part of well, a team? And, yeah, the collegiality was always good, I think, in I, every place that I've been. And I think I, I can honestly say this. I, I don't think I've ever met anyone in academia that I disliked. I, I may have people that I hold in, in esteem at different levels, uh -huh, uh -huh. you know, but I don't, uh, I don't really uh, decide who my friends are based on their technical mm -hmm. expertise. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, uh, I've been very fortunate in, I think, uh, the people that I've been surrounded by and all the places I've been. But when I was at Rice as a, my master's thesis was actually an experimental one mm -hmm. on internal friction. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was okay, you know. I I, uh, I think the I found out rather quickly that I didn't really want to stay an experimentalist, not because I couldn't do experiments, because a lot in those days we taught ourselves a lot of things, or we learned from the previous graduate student yeah. how to take uh, uh, X-ray shots and orient single crystals, how to grow single crystals. Uh, you know, we would teach ourselves in those days how to use uh, Greninger charts and Wolf nets, and hmm. uh, I wasn't particularly good at electronics, and that. Now it's a lot easier because it's all digital, but yeah. in those days it wasn't. And yes. uh, I must admit, I absolutely hated electrical engineering. <laughs> yes. But that was because you'd have to go through and take power engineering courses and uh -huh. learn about uh, Ys and deltas and transformers and stuff. I just it, good stuff. It just didn't yes. uh, excite me. And by the time uh, the transistor came along, I was always already so fed up with double E. I, I didn't want to take any more courses. Yeah. Later on, you have to learn these things anyway, just so you can do things around your house and uh -huh. not have to uh -huh. pay high-priced electricians to <laughs> yeah. do it. But anyway, uh, no, I I, uh, I I enjoyed my time at Rice. It was rather different. It, it taught me something very good, and that was that I thought I'd have a better chance doing theory than I would as an experimentalist. Experimentalist. Uh, it's, it's very it, it's hard I think because you have such a huge investment of time mm -hmm. that you must get something out of mm -hmm. yeah. as a theoretician if something doesn't work out you throw it away and do another problem and uh, so to me it's always or maybe there are things it, along the way that still happen. I'm sure experimentalists feel you know maybe, quite maybe. the same yeah, thing about uh, yeah. theoreticians but <laughs> at any rate uh, once I uh, once I got to Stanford 
I had something that I, although I had good math teachers at Rice, I think the, at that time, it doesn't exist anymore, but the, we had three really excellent people in uh, applied mathematics as part of the uh, Stanford math department. And I had taken a lot of material science courses at Rice, so I took very few at Stanford. And I was already, I'd already uh, stayed at Rice an extra year to take uh, graduate physics courses. I was sort of convinced I was going to switch to physics. I wouldn't have done that as an undergraduate because the undergraduate physicists were all, they were really the bright kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, graduate school uh, there, uh, a lot of the, the good guys from Rice went on to other schools. And so I felt I had a better chance with of competing with the people that were coming in as graduate students from other places. Uh, but uh, I got a good education in, uh, uh, you know, solid state physics, quantum mechanics, uh, you know, classical mechanics. And then I decided I'd been in Rice too long. And all my buddies were going out to California. They were going to be with, Sil- with the start of Silicon Valley firms. And so I went out there too. And I had a very good time at Stanford. I got to take uh, mathematics courses from three really good people. Uh, Harold Levine, who's still a good friend of mine. And uh, we always used to refer to him as Mr. Green's function because no. he, was, uh, he, was, he taught a year-long course in that. And it was superb. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, a, he was a great lecturer and, and an excellent teacher. A fellow named Gordon Latta, who had come from Caltech, and he was a very good uh, operational calculus man, also taught uh, me uh, variational calculus, and I think uh, ended up uh, going to the University of Virginia. Mm-hmm. And uh, the third one was one of the most fascinating people I've ever met, Max Schiffer, who was very well known in pure math and applied math. And Schiffer uh, was one of these people. He, he had uh, grown up in Israel, uh, and he, he he knew physics. He knew math. He could give you an explanation of a problem in terms of physics or in terms of math. And he taught a um, quarter-long course in uh, the mathematical theory of electricity and magnetism. And in those days, engineers would flock to his courses like that. It was one of the, it was, I, I just love to sit there and listen to him, you know, and, uh, and uh, it was, uh, for me, it was a one marvelous education. Uh, that, uh, the only, those three gentlemen, I think Schiffer passed away, um, Latta, I'm not sure if he's still alive, but he had left Stanford by the time I returned on the faculty. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the uh, environment for applied mathematicians wasn't that good. Joe Keller came from mm-hmm. uh, the Quran Institute mm-hmm. and he brought a lot of good young people with him and I used to go to the applied math seminars and Joe and his wife are still good friends of yeah, ours yeah. and uh, he's he received the Nobel Prize it, right and he, he Joe will be I think 90 years old in next January yeah. and you would never know it he uh, uh, he used to play basketball uh, at uh, uh, accordingly, uh, as I've heard it uh, from people at the Quran Institute, at, at lunch at noon. I don't think he eats lunch. He, he still uh-huh. walks and does uh-huh. But you see him on campus all the time. Uh, one of the most unforgettable people I've yeah. ever met and yeah. just an absolute delight. And yeah. at 90, you know, he could still run rings around me and probably around a lot of us. Uh, just a fascinating individual. And then I went to Germany where uh, the postdoc experience wasn't as much about science as it was about uh just sort of growing up a little bit more. Uh, it's another stage in life. You mm-hmm. learn that you could exist in another culture and mm-hmm. a foreign country for a year. 
and you learn to do things differently because life is not the same on a day-to-day basis. Uh, people are the same, but you know the, the way you do banking, the way you get a car fixed, uh, yeah, things absolutely. like that is different. And you you learn how to cope with those things, and it's sort of maybe uh, uh, an example of this self-confidence that you need to get as you go to the next step in life. And what you find out is, you know, you look back and say, you know, I've done this kind of thing several times. I can do it. Sure. So you know, why should you be afraid of the future? This is something that you should look forward to. And uh, I think probably every student, uh, graduate student certainly finds that out. Everyone really finds that out in their own way as they go along in life. You're listening to an Applied Mechanics Reviews audio interview from October 10th, 2012 with Professor David Barnett of the Departments of Materials Science and Engineering and Mechanical Engineering at Stanford University. I'm your host, Harry Dankovich. What brought you back to Stanford after? Well, I was very lucky. I went to, after I got out of uh, uh, Germany, I had interviewed at a couple of places. I had a, I had a job offer from Brown uh, for the faculty, which I, because I had postdoc for about three months there before I went overseas. And I have a lot of respect for Brown. I had a lot of friends from there. Yeah. Uh, and it's a marvelous institution. And, and any, I've often thought, well, this was, uh, uh, you know, I probably could have gone there and had a different kind of career. I don't know if I would have gotten tenure or not because they had, you know, really good people there. Rod Clifton and Jim mm-hmm. Rice and Ben mm-hmm. Friend. And, and uh, 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 it was a very, very well-run place. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, really, really top-notch mm-hmm. people in mechanics. Mm-hmm. And it's, it still is. It still is and stayed that way for a long time. And uh, But I decided uh, my year away was from 67 to 68. A lot of things happened. As soon as I got there, uh, the Detroit riots had occurred. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there were assassinations, Martin Luther King, sure. Robert F. Kennedy. Sure. And I honestly had no idea of what kind of country I was coming back to yeah. at the end of the day. It was, a, it was an incredible year to be away and yeah. to look at your own country from, from uh, outside, yeah. you know. Yeah. And so I went back and I thought, you know, I had this offer from Ford Motor Company, which had a very good scientific lab. Their, their um, metallurgy laboratory at that time was really superb. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, I'll go there. I'm not going to be, you know, uh, uh, saddled with trying to get any research money. Uh, you could go to meetings. They encourage you to publish. It was just a very free atmosphere, probably even better than uh, universities in those days. And there were a couple of places like that. I mean, Bell Labs was the paragon of uh, mm-hmm. such places. Uh, the GE Labs at Schenectady were wonderful. Mm-hmm. The U.S. Uh, the E.C. Bain Labs at U.S. Steel in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, a uh, great place. And uh, the day I walked in the door, the uh, the head of the labs got fired, and he went to Xerox. Uh, okay. And everybody was sort of worried about, well, we're you know maybe we won't we'll have to do applied work. Mm-hmm. Which really didn't bother me. I mean, there's nothing wrong with applied right. work. Yes. There are fascinating problems there. But uh, when you know when you're the new guy in town and you go to coffee every day and people are starting to you, you sense that they're worried yes, about what's yes, going on. Right, yes. It really it really Drops does off. a number on morale. And I've been I've seen this so many times happen at Stanford. I mean, mm-hmm. you know the the original applied mechanics group that was one of part of my joint appointment uh, got changed from a department into a division. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of talk that we'd have to go with aeronautics or we'd have to go with mechanical engineering. Mm -hmm. Basically, all these things work out. Mm -hmm. But at Ford, that wasn't happening. Nobody, somebody has to take the lead and say, look, guys, you know, don't worry about this. We're okay. I'm going to see to it. Things, nobody did that. 
And so at Ford, uh, I, I, I just said, well, I had the opportunity to go back to Stanford. My friend Bill Nix and uh, Craig Barrett, who later became the CEO of Intel, mm-hmm. he was on our faculty at mm-hmm. that time. And he and Bill came to a meeting in Pittsburgh and had, uh, uh, I, I think they had called me. They said, look, we, we, you know, we want to talk to you while you're there. About Stanford, uh, possible Stanford position. And I was sort of, I was still single. I was sort of ready to, you know, leave Michigan. I liked Ford very much. I yeah. liked the freedom they had, but mm-hmm. I wasn't really sure what was going to happen. And I, I liked California one heck of a lot better yeah. than the Midwest. The people were wonderful in I the see. Midwest, yeah. but, uh, the weather was different. You know, the, sure. the Ford, the metallurgy labs had a golf tournament in December that they played in snow and everybody had to play with colored golf balls uh-huh. so you could find the uh-huh. things. And, I, and having grown up in Texas and then moved yeah. out to California, I was ready for a little more right. warm weather. So when the opportunity came to get back to Stanford, I took it and I've never been uh, sorry. I mean, so this for, was really only a couple of years. This was, right. I only, I only stayed a for a year at Ford. I think I, I was in Germany from 67 to 68. Yeah. I came back and started Ford in September of 68 and I think I was back at Stanford by you know, September of 69 so with years. a pay cut I was I actually took pay cut from Ford from Ford yeah not from graduate school well I, th- I think but no 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 <laughs> I, I think in graduate school we were paid around $250 a month uh-huh. uh, my German my for NATO post for uh, well, I think it was 12 months was 12. We, everybody worked through the summer uh-huh. for um but of course, life was a lot cheaper in yeah, those days. Yeah. Uh, Germany, I had a NATO postdoc, I think, that paid me five fifty a month, more money than I could spend mm-hmm. in Germany. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was I probably making not a lot less than the fellow that was hosting me mm. was making at that time. Mm-hmm. At Ford, I think I started uh, for around fourteen and a half thousand a year, and they'd give me a raise to seventeen thousand before I left. Yeah. And I felt bad about telling them that I was gonna leave, but yeah. I felt like I just I had to. Yeah. And then when I started Stanford, I actually I think my I was back to fourteen thousand four hundred to hmm. start with for but that was for nine months. So I guess right. it really wasn't all that wasn't all that bad. Yeah, yeah, Maybe yeah. it wasn't really a cut on a on a year uh-huh. basis. Uh-huh. But, uh, you know, you uh, typically don't decide, or you should, I don't think you should decide your life based on money, no. uh, and that, uh, unless the differences are really huge. Right. So, and, uh, and depending on who depends on that, you. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, I've never regretted it for me. It's been what, how was coming back to the institution where you had been a graduate student? Oh, this, you know, it, it, for me, it wasn't bad. I, I was in a very interesting place because when I came in as a graduate student, I was really, uh, there, there had been one fellow who was uh, really doing theoretical work. And a uh, Turkish fellow, uh, Tariq Ogurtani, who worked for uh, Bob Huggins, very good guy. And then Bill Nix, who was a graduate student, just finishing up at that time. He, Bill was teaching while he was a graduate mm-hmm. student. He was that good. Uh, he had, his uh, PhD thesis was actually on magnetism. Mm-hmm. And so he had done uh, some theoretical work. Uh, and, but I was the only guy who really wanted to do it with an eye toward mechanical behavior mm-hmm. of solids. So I took a few mechanics courses, audits some mechanic courses, took mainly math courses. Yeah. And uh, so mine was, uh, my work was on uh, solving some dislocation problems mm-hmm. in two-phase media, you know, mm-hmm. different bimetallic media, different mm-hmm. elastic constants. That mm-hmm. was a class of problems that was very much in vogue. And there were people like Toshio Mura and John Dunders at Northwestern who were doing really excellent work in that area. And so I was interested in continuous distributions of dislocations and how one 
uh, led me to learn how to solve integral equations and okay. things like that. Yes. So for me, it was a very it was a good learning. Andre Valley Province, yeah, integral defense. Yeah, it's a good, good, uh, uh, a good experience for me. And because I was one of the only people doing that kind mm-hmm. of thing, mm-hmm. and I think uh, uh, Stanford. Uh, what happened was I worked for a fellow named Alan Tettleman, who was very mm-hmm. prominent in fracture at that time. And uh, he, uh, when I left Stanford uh, to go to Germany, Alan, I think, went to. ARPA for a year, and then he left ARPA and went to start the, uh, or beef up the uh, materials department at UCLA. And he hired some good people, did a very nice job, and then unfortunately died in a uh, plane crash. He was flying from uh, uh, L.A. to San Diego to do some consulting. He was always very good to me. He gave me a lot of freedom to do what I wanted to do because I was the only person in the group who wasn't busting uh, Sharpie specimens and things like that. So I was doing uh, theoretical work at that time. And I think Stanford wanted somebody back, they said, to sort of get, you know, be able to teach a course in fracture mechanics, which mm-hmm. was finally getting popularized. Mm-hmm. Uh, people were looking up, you know, taking a, after uh, George Irwin. Jim Rice had started mm-hmm. to do some mm-hmm. magnificent work at Brown in that area. So it was sort of fun to get in on the ground floor of that. And I had to learn some new things to teach courses. Uh, uh, you know, I uh, basically, I think I was sort of treated as an equal from the day I walked in. The faculty were always very back. nice to me when I came yeah, back. Yeah. So I never, the only uh, thing, and, and, and this worked out to my advantage, uh, I, being I was a young guy and I was still single at that time, whenever we had seminar visitors, I was the guy who took them out to dinner yeah. afterwards. And most of the faculty there, they were younger at that time. They yeah. had their own family responsibilities. Sure. So uh, I, would, uh, I would take these people out to dinner yes. and I got to talk with them. Yes. meet them yes. and uh, uh, you know it was a fascinating experience because I met some wonderful wonderful visitors yes. that day really people who were known on the international scene uh, and uh, uh, certainly when there were theoreticians that came through and nobody really wanted to spend much time with them so I had them all to myself yeah. and over the years uh, it's you know I've uh, I really treasure those friendships a lot yeah. and uh, I learned a lot yeah in some of our correspondence before this meeting today, you mentioned some of the stuff you've been reading, books you've been reading oh. recently. <laughs> and I also note that, of course, you were born in 1939. Right. Um, at, at what time of year? Uh, November. November, I okay. So after, birthday so after the World War II had, had been triggered in Europe. Uh, yes, in Europe, struck, but not yet. You know, not it yet wasn't quite US, felt right. in the U.S. yet. Right. Um, and one of the books you, you've been reading recently is the uh, uh, Nothing All Quiet on the Western oh, Front, yeah. which is World War One. Um, was the war a major uh, part of? Your- no, actually, in fact, it's funny. I, I, I only went back and uh, uh, and I decided that I wanted to. Uh, I, uh, I don't know which part of this question to answer first, but I I, I really wanted to. Um, I, I decided I wanted to read Audie Murphy's book uh, to Helen back, mm-hmm. describing his experiences. He was the most decorated soldier of World War II. And he started went in the army when he was like seventeen, then became a movie star. Uh-huh. And because, primarily because I had uh, taken the family to Washington, D.C. for some uh, scientific business. They were sightseeing, and I took them out to Wash, uh, Arlington National Cemetery. We wanted to see John F. Kennedy's grave. Uh-huh. And not very far away is Audie Murphy's grave because uh, he was a decorated soldier and yeah. deserved to be uh, yeah. buried there. And I thought, you know, really, I, sh- I should read his book and his mm-hmm. perspective on mm-hmm. war. And and I thought, well, I had uh, seen the classic movie with Lou Ayers, All Quiet on the Western mm-hmm. Front, and mm-hmm. I would go back. I said, well, I, I lived in Germany, and I knew the, the Germans referred to it as Invest in Nichts Neues, 
Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so uh, I said, well, I'll read this at the same time. Two different wars, all about inter- infantrymen. Yes. And it was amazing. The, uh, the, the perspectives weren't all that different. Even Murphy, who was a, a very decorated soldier and who, uh, unbeknownst to most of the public, suffered from post-traumatic stress syndrome after, the, you know, after World sure. War II. Uh, th- these, these experiences were, were similar. War is war, and it's, uh, uh, I guess I'm not really a pacifist, but uh, it, it, you could see it, it's, it, it has terrible effects on everyone yeah. concerned with it. And it was sort of interesting to see that same point of view expressed, one in fict- a fictional work, one in nonfiction, mm-hmm. and from two totally different Mm-hmm. Time periods. I thought they were really brilliant books. I'm sure Murphy didn't write his book. I'm sure it was ghost written mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. by someone. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly uh, the World War One picture is a very very bleak one. Oh yeah, and, yeah. And, and I mean, you see German, uh, you know, young students who had no idea of what life was like, right. much less war, yanked out and yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, put at the front, where yeah. they learned rather quickly about uh, the fact that uh, the life of an infantryman sure. can be a very horrible yeah. Uh, yeah. thing. What do you think? Uh, has been the influence of wars and, I guess, defense industry and security needs on the progress of science? Oh, well, there's no question. It's, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it, it's, it caused a, a, a development of a whole number of things. There was a nice series on PBS a number of years ago on, um, I guess, the, the six uh, the great, I don't know whether you want to call them inventions or things that were produced in uh, World War II. One was... Of course, uh, uh, the Enigma machine mm-hmm. for uh, breaking the German code, the uh, uh, the atom bomb. Uh, the one that fascinated me the most, and particularly from the point of view of mechanics, was the development of the proximity fuse. Uh, in those days, uh, artillery shells, when they're fired up, yeah. uh, you know, any aircraft, uh, yeah. oh, uh, yes, you, know, you have to uh, s- uh, somehow the things have to go off. They're not going to design to go off on impact. They have to be uh, based on either time or distance right. uh, flight. And of course, that's pretty much a happenstance thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently, at the uh, outbreak of the war in Europe, when the Germans Germans attacked uh, uh, Great Britain. Churchill brought down all the artillery the Germans, uh, the uh, British had, to London to try to fight off the uh, German bombers, and they were having no success. Their 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 effectiveness was almost mm-hmm. zero. But it was mm-hmm. more for show, just sort of random to let the shooting. public know that we're yeah. and. Uh, uh, so the United States set about developing a proximity fuse, which, as I understand it, is basically a little radio transmitter that they would put in the uh, warheads yeah. of the shells, yeah. and these things would then uh, basically it was like a, a pulse echo technique. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, they'd strike something, and then the, the artillery shell could be uh, uh, set off, and it would stand a better chance. In fact, a fantastically good chance mm-hmm. of bringing down mm-hmm. whatever it was uh, near. And initially, I think the yields were fantastic. They went up. To like sixty or eighty mm-hmm. percent, and uh, at that time, uh, they had an interview with uh, James Van Allen of the Van Allen Belt, a yeah. uh, physicist yeah. who had worked on that project. Now, I-, I never met Van Allen; he was no doubt a brilliant man. But if you listen to him talk, it was as if he had played a major role in developing this. So it's sort of interesting to people in applied mechanics. I think one of the task force leaders on the development of the proximity fuse was Ray Minlin 
was an outstanding yes. applied uh, mechanician yes. from Columbia University, originally trained as a civil engineer. Mm -hmm. He was referred to as a civil engineer from <laughs> Columbia I see. in that. So it was sort of interesting to hear yeah. that piece of history. It's a fantastic, it's a it's a fantastic set of programs, but the proximity fuse uh, show, in my uh, opinion, was the best one, uh -huh. simply because it meant one for, more for me. Right. I, had, uh, I knew a lot of people who had worked with Midland, yeah. uh, George Herman, who was my former department chair at Stanford. Stanford, who yeah. had come from Northwestern, had been a, essentially a postdoc with mm -hmm. Midland in mm -hmm. Columbia. And uh, I had the pleasure of having uh, dinner after a meeting at Northwestern at CNM at Nasser's home. And he had, mm -hmm. had Midland Min was at the meeting and mm -hmm. he was there. And he was such a fantastically interesting man. Uh, clearly, uh, a, a throwback to the days that we no longer see, uh, a very well-read, cultured man. He had read, he told me, um, uh, uh, I guess it was Lagrange's uh, Celestial Mechanics mm. in the original French. Uh -huh. And he was just, uh, you couldn't help but realize that you were in the presence of a, not only a great mind, but a terrific scholar. Yeah. And uh, I was at another meeting where Midland spoke. This was back when couple stresses were very popular, and he gave a talk on this. It was a meeting that uh, my postdoctoral uh, host, Professor Kroener, had uh, sponsored in Germany. And Midland gave a beautiful talk that showed that he really un understood the physics of crystals and, mm -hmm. and, and uh, lattice mechanics mm -hmm. and, uh, of course, new continuum mechanics well. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, it's one of the things I think that young people... Uh, really like to hear. I'm sure the same is true these days. When you listen to someone who has a, a good historical perspective, a good uh, uh, understanding of what's gone on and, and can articulate mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. you uh, think, geez, I want to be like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's pretty much the way I yeah. felt. So there's the, that, that, uh, that proximity fuse program holds special meaning for me, not because I know anything about proximity fuses, but I would recommend that little PBS series to anyone who could get a hold yeah. of it. I'm sure it exists on DVD uh, somewhere. You're listening to an Applied Mechanics Review's audio interview from October 10th, 2012 with Professor David Barnett of the Departments of Materials Science and Engineering and Mechanical Engineering at Stanford University. I'm your host, Harry Dankovich. Are there papers that you've written? So you have a few papers that we'll talk about. I have a number minutes. of papers I'd like to take back. Well, but, <laughs> that's interesting. Yes, that's, so that's, that's, I, I was not going to ask about that. That's gonna, true. That's true. Gonna, are, are there papers that you've written that you were really, really proud of, but that didn't receive much attention? Uh, yeah, I don't, well, I don't know that any of my stuff's ever received much attention, but I will tell you the thing I'm um, going to talk about, uh, talk about uh, this evening uh, in connection with this Erringen medal, it's it's work that was uh, done in 1985. Okay, uh, what I am going to talk about is one of the things I'm really the most proud of. Uh, we didn't have a, a any research money to do it. I did it with Jens Lota and some of other people. We were uh, uh, we, it was part of a continuing series of papers on uh, Rayleigh waves mm -hmm. and Stoney waves, mm -hmm. and. Uh, took about two years to complete. Uh, the basic calculations were uh, Lota had done some of them and I had done some of them and Peter Chadwick in East Anglia had done some of them and we put it all uh, put it all together in a sort of a, a, a new format. We had done the earlier work on Rayleigh wave based on dislocation theory which is a rather unnatural setting for that problem so we redid it 
in terms of what the electrical engineers would have called the the impedance tensor. Okay. And it's it's a, a little a more natural setting, and, and it turned out to be a richer way of treating the problem. But there were some little fine points that to make the whole thing hang together right, because I didn't want to publish this paper and then you know, a year later, write something and say, well, here's to finish up what we should have done the first time. So I, uh, we held back on it, and it turned out the things were easy to do. It just took a while to see how to do them. And uh, I thought uh, when we published these two papers back-to-back uh, in 85 in the Royal Society, one was on Rayleigh waves and the other was on the Stony Wave problems. You could do the Rayleigh wave problem, the Stony Wave problem, but go like that. Mm-hmm. And it just worked out well. I, I, was, really, I was really proud of that. I, I don't know that the papers were as well written as I liked, although I've been reading them over so I yeah. can, can remember what in the heck I did for yeah. this talk. And uh, I, I still like it after all these yeah. years. That I can say. Yeah. So uh, that and, uh, gee, I've had a couple of dislocation papers I really liked. Anyway, but Do you the, but, remember struggling uh, over, over a, a, a part of the solution and then coming to an insight that you hadn't anticipated? Well, yes. Absolutely. Working really hard, presumably, on coming well, to that well, that didn't just come to Well, let me, the story was that I would, uh, in those days, we didn't have any email, mm-hmm. okay? So I would communicate with Lota, who was an excellent physicist in Norway, yeah. uh, by letter. And uh, so I would send him something that I've done. As soon as I mailed it off to him, I knew... I, this is wrong. So I'd have to send another letter saying, hey, forget what I said in this. Yeah. This is absolutely all wrong. And, and Jens, of course, was the kind of guy who could have done all this stuff by himself. But uh, he was kind enough to let me work with him. And he suffered the, uh, uh, the arguments of a fool probably more than he should have been required to. Uh, but uh, finally, there was this little glitch that I, I just wanted to prove. And I don't know how I stumbled onto it, hmm. but I did. It's a, it, the whole thing took maybe four lines. And I remember drafting that up, and I said, okay, before I send this off, I better make sure I've done the darn thing right. And I sent it, uh, I, I checked it, and I sent it off to him, and he got a thing back from him. Of course, we were, I guess, maybe phones were too expensive. Yes, and, uh, right. Now we get all that stuff sure. paid for, but, yeah, yeah. but uh, we didn't at that time. And uh, he, he, he liked it, and he knew it was, uh, uh, he knew it sort of polished off the paper. And I said, okay, I'm writing it up now. Do you remember the, the moments before realizing the solution and the moments after realizing Well, I think what happened was I just, I found something that should have been a little more obvious than it actually was. It was one starting point, one equation. Yeah that I needed to have. And what it was, I mean, in anisotropic elasticity, there's this very famous uh, eigenvalue problem of Stroh's, uh, uh, the uh, six-dimensional eigenvalue problem. And one of those equations in there, if you write it down, uh, if you can recognize it for what it is or use a particular coordinate system mm-hmm. to see what that equation mm-hmm. looks like, uh, you find out it's, it's an equation that's got uh, basically three terms in it. Yeah. One of them becomes zero, yeah. and the other two at le- that are left are simple to analyze. You you make an assumption, and then you see that it leads immediately to a contradiction. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, I forget what it is. I think, in, in fact, you end up uh, having to assume the, the 
it, it ends up amounting to one of the stro roots being, or one of the stro eigenvalues. You assume it has a, a real uh, a real part that's positive, and it turns out it can't be it's negative. Okay. So it's true. Once you once you yeah. you don't see it, yes. you just see the starting point. Yes. You plow through it, and it's only two lines, yes. and the whole thing works out. Yes. I was convinced I'd done something wrong. I must have read that thing over ten times, and and I thought, well, you know. It's okay. It's uh-huh. right. That's uh-huh. the way it should be. Uh-huh. And that held up publication for a couple of years. But that's right. I'd learned by that time. I'd already made enough mistakes in other papers that take your time. I see. There's nothing. You don't need to. You know, nobody's going to scoop you on this, quite frankly, because nobody cares that much about this problem. <laughs> right? They don't care that much about anything uh-huh. I've ever done. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That was fun because it, it it showed me that, you know, it, it was worth sticking with. Yeah. And, and it was a it was a, a big league problem, you know. It yeah. was one I think the, the people that I knew about, I, I think they saw it and respected it yeah. and and believed it. Yeah. And uh, so uh, it was. I just felt like, well, it was. You know, this was a job well done. Yeah. Now let's go on to yeah. the next thing, which yeah. we did. And Lot and I continued along those same lines. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, he did some. He's done some brilliant work in this area. I, I keep recommending three of his papers to people in mechanics all the time. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember talking to Jim Knowles at Caltech about him once. I said, you know, the problem is this was published in a Russian physics journal. People in mechanics aren't going to see it. The only person who did was Peter Chadwick, who wrote a nice extended exposition of it. And it's uh, it's uh, all about uh, the existence of acoustic axes in crystals, mm-hmm. uh, directions in space where two or more phase velocities are the same. Mm-hmm. And do they always exist? In particular, would they exist in triclinic crystals? Uh-huh. The papers are called Elastic Waves in Triclinic Crystals, uh-huh. one, two, three. Okay. Using just incredibly transparent arguments and a little bit of topology. You know, you have to talk about uh, oh, uh, the fixed point theorem, you yeah. know, and why there's a one point on your head where all the hair seems to emanate uh, from. Uh, and it's just done. The reasoning is so crisp and clear. And it's, it, I'm not involved in this. This was a paper by Lota and uh, Volodya Alshitz, mm-hmm. who was a, a very good Russian scientist who's done some excellent work with Jens. It's a beautiful piece of work. I think anybody interested in waves, anybody even interested in mechanics or mathematics should see it. Now, once asked... Ian, it was published in a Russian journal. It turned in a Russian originally journal. Originally in, in Russian. No, originally oh. in English, oh. but in a Russian... Well, it may have been in Russian. I, I think the version I have is yeah. in English. Yeah. I, and they, it's just... Uh, uh, and I asked Ian I asked once, I said, how did you think about this? He said, well, look, let's suppose you have a material like cubic symmetry. And we have acoustic ax- an acoustic axis that exists. And let's say, uh, you know, as we do, it exists in iron, uh, nickel, copper, things like that. You have two curves that essentially cross. Mm-hmm. And where they cross is defines that in the origin, define of a slowness surface, define the direction of the uh, acoustic axis in mm-hmm. space. So now let's suppose you give this material a small perturbation mm-hmm. in its elastic constants. Mm-hmm. You, you can make it triclinic mm-hmm. by doing that mm-hmm. with very little effort. Mm-hmm. Two lines that cross, all you're doing, but just by a continuity argument, they're still going to cross. But obviously meaning you're going to have a triclinic crystal with acoustic axis. Most people, you, you think acoustic axis, oh, well, that's only going to be in real high symmetry materials. Mm-hmm. Well, that little simple argument shows you that's not true. Mm-hmm. And and they basically the papers, which I don't, I, they're nine pages probably, the sum total of the three. Mm. It's even a, a, a dummy like me 
could read those, or like I, could read those things and say, man, even I can recognize the brilliance in this stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's fantastic. I don't think there are very many people to this day that know about that. I know Peter Chadwick did, of course. Uh, and, and there probably are others. A lot of Jens's work and even some of the stuff I've done with him, it's probably received a bigger audience in Russia because mm -hmm. I still have a lot of uh, Russian friends that I've never met. We actually yeah. communicate only by mail and they yeah. know about this, but I don't think it's one that's had, uh, you know, as far as, uh, practical significance, yeah. probably not much, uh, even though radio wave devices are yeah. very, and, 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 and wave devices are very, uh, were important technologically at uh -huh. one time. As I understand it, in the uh, the days in which the Soviet Union still existed, and, and we were always trying to fool the Soviets by uh, dispersing chaff from our planes, so that uh, they, you know, if they were using radar or other yes. thing devices, wave devices, you know, yes. it would disperse. You'd, you'd, you'd get signals back that just didn't mean anything. Yes. Apparently, there was a I once heard a fellow talk about a little Rayleigh wave device. It sort of sends a, a Rayleigh wave out, and, and, and then you get it back. Uh, you, you get something back that yeah. gives you a signature of the fact that there's something out there yeah. so that even dispersing chaff isn't a totally free, uh, uh, sure way of uh, disguising your aircraft or whatever it is you're trying to describe. Maybe it's a drone. I don't know. Mm. Of course, the fact that there's chaff there means probably there's something, something, something out there somewhere. So yeah. I don't, I'm, not a, yeah. I'm not a military so, so then we have the paper that I also quoted in the beginning with Zhigang and, and John. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Go, you you tell, well, no, you go you ahead. Said, you, you told oh, me a good well, story. Well, no, no. Yeah. This, this, was, this, this was the highly paper. Highly cited paper. It's a highly cited paper. And I think it's Zhigang, uh, 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 John Willis, uh, uh, Chengming Kuo, who was a student of mine and myself. And a uh, uh, very highly cited paper. Let me say at the outset, the person who deserves all the credit on this is Zhigong Suo. And the way this came about, back in 1991, I think it was 91 or 90, I guess it was, Tom Ting, good friend of mine from the University of, was at the University of Illinois at Chicago at the time, an excellent uh, waves man. He's written a book on anisotropic elasticity. He asked me to help him uh, uh, put together a conference for uh, the U.S. Army Math Office in uh, Raleigh-Durham, which we did. And one of the things that I told him that I wanted to do was invite a lot of young people because, uh, you know, it was even clear at that time, I think, that if applied mechanics were to continue to be a viable field, you would need to have uh, younger people getting into the field, good young people. And we already knew by that time that Zhigong uh, Suo and Wajin Gao were two of the best. They'd come out of Harvard. Zhigong, uh, I, uh, I knew, was a phenomenal person mm -hmm. and uh, scientist. And Wajin, I knew, was the same because mm -hmm. he was one of my colleagues at Stanford mm -hmm. at that time. And so uh, we went to this meeting, and uh, Zhigong gave a talk there. John Willis was there, I mm -hmm. think, gave a talk. And uh, I, this graduate student of mine, Quo, gave a talk. It was a fairly traditional talk. It was a little asymptotic analysis of what happens when you have a, a crack that uh, strikes an interface between two dissimilar piezoelectrics. Mm -hmm. So it's got anisotropic elasticity, piezoelectricity. It's not, not very hard to do the analysis. And what he was extracting was the form of the singularity. And, mm -hmm. of course, what you get is something like what you get in normal elastic theory. You get a, a crack singularity that's not R to the minus one-half. It's like R to the minus one-half plus epsilon, where epsilon has both a real and an imaginary part. 
So you get some of these non-physical oscillations mm -hmm. that people tend to disregard. And so it wasn't interesting. It was just an illustration mm -hmm. of a technique mm -hmm. that we had used once before. Shikon came up to us after that, and he says, uh, Dave, he says, you know, you don't have this, you've got this funny singularity, and this is not the usual isotropic case that most people investigate in normal elasticity. It's piezoelectric, and, and it's also uh, anisotropic necessarily. So how do you, uh, uh, what do you get when you compute the ener energy release rate? And I said, well, we never computed the energy release rate. You know, I, I don't know. what. He, so he said, I'm going to work on that. He, and and uh, he, he came back the next morning, and of course, he'd already doped it out. And uh, uh, John Willis, who is uh, uh, just a phenomenal guy also, he looks at it. John doesn't take John very long to size things up, and he liked it. I looked at it, and I wasn't anywhere near as quick as John, but it looked okay to me. And so Gigon comes back, and I think within 10 days, we had a copy of the paper from him. It was, I want to emphasize, it was all his work. Now, he may have, he may have done something with Willis, although Willis swears that he didn't. And, you know, it was Gigon's work. And anything good mm -hmm. that comes from that paper mm -hmm. should be attributed entirely mm -hmm. to Gigon. All it's right. all his. And I feel uh, like I sort of got in on the coattails of a good thing. Mm -hmm. Because he, uh, uh, in fact, I think both of us remembered telling him that, gee, Chicon, just, just put your name on it. You're the only one. No, 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 we're in this together. You yeah. know, I got the yeah. idea for yeah. doing this yeah. from you guys, but it's his work. So, so it's serendipity sometimes. Absolutely. In my own career, and I think, you know, uh, I've told this to people uh, many times, uh, serendipity can be everything. Mm hmm you know, you just have to be thinking about the right thing at the right time. You have to be in the right place at the yeah, right time. And yeah. even if you're in the right place at the right time, yeah. doesn't mean you're going to be on the same wavelength sure. that you need to be on sure. to recognize this opportunity. Yeah. So uh, that was a, uh, I mean, I could have just as easily stepped out to get a cup of coffee and Ms. Jigong <laughs> right. all together, you know, and, right. and he could have done it. In fact, it would have been better for him. If he, <laughs> but uh, uh, no, it was, uh, 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 don't ever disregard the role of blind luck. Yeah, and, yeah. and that influences us. You know, we were talking before. That's a lot of, uh, uh, I think, a lot of what happens to you. You know, you you choose a mate, you decide to move to a particular place, you take a particular job. You normally people in our profession, we have a lot of different choices, and we go down one road yeah. as opposed to going down another. It sort yeah. of reminds me of Yogi Berra's old statement, yeah, when you come to it. a fork in the road, take it, <laughs> right. uh, uh, that kind of right. thing. Right. So I, I'm a firm believer in that, and I don't, uh, there's nothing wrong with that, yeah. with luck. It, it, it's good if you can have good luck. I, most of us generally can't say that, right. but uh, right. it doesn't hurt. I'm really delighted that you had the time to speak to me this morning, and, and it was a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much. Harry, it's a pleasure, and uh, I just I think what you're doing is, a, 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 I hope it's a very worthwhile thing. I know I certainly appreciate it. Mechanics, like any of the sciences, is it, it's a wonderful field. It's an opportunity to meet people who are really fascinating, who uh, as diverse as you would ever want to uh, find, and it is only it can only enrich your life. And so my words to younger people are go to meetings, meet a lot of people, have a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about publicizing yourself. If you're doing something good, that'll naturally be yeah. bred by the you know, the people that you want to reach. Yeah. And just enjoy yourself. You know, life it's a wonderful way, uh, it's a wonderful way to have a good life and you meet an excellent, excellent group of people. And I thank you for the opportunity you. to talk with you today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.
This is Harry Dankovich, editor of Applied Mechanics Reviews. Thank you for listening to this Applied Mechanics Reviews audio interview with Professor David Barnett from Stanford University. Please remember to come back for more reflections on all aspects of applied mechanics research and professional engagement.